crucify your king. And the chief priests answer, we have no king but Caesar. And yet, though they reject Jesus, he didn't come to condemn them. He came to save them. You know, there are some people in these chapters that I can relate to. Don't struggle with the fact that if you're a person who doesn't relate to the really good people in the story or who are doing good, because there's none good but one, then you relate to the people that are always making the wrong decision, you know, <laughs> the wrong problem, the wrong attitude. They can't seem to get it together or you see them ex- revealed to you. Uh, I just want to comfort you. That's I've always seen myself there. And I'm not down on myself. I don't hate myself. But I've always seen myself because I came from a background not taught by my parents, but I, I made fun of Jesus and wanted nothing to do with him. And he didn't reject me. He came to save me. So he also came to save those priests. Remember in Acts 6, verse 7, it says that many of the chief priests came to know him. Some of them, not the high, high one, but came to him. You know, the charter church. Do you know what charter means? you know charter member? You know, Roger and Christine Lytle. Raise your hands right here. Raise your hands. Yeah, come on, Christine. Do what I say. You're a charter member. Okay. I think, is there an Ann Lynn? Raise your hand. These guys are like charter members, let me look around, of ACF, because they were here from the very beginning, basically. They were a little before you, because they were at the right over here. But So it's the first group of people that first are a part of something. Well, the whole charter member of the church is Jewish for quite a while. But for now, there's not even a church yet. There's the disciples who have, are running. And in verse 16... Then he delivered, this is Pilate about Jesus, then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to the place, went out to a place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. You know it in Latin, really, as Calvary. And where they crucified him and two others with him on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. And Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Yeah, Calvary, Golgotha, a mountain area in the city of Jerusalem. Abraham called it by a different name. It was called previously Mount Moriah. In Genesis 22, the Lord tells Abraham to take his son, his only son, even though there is an Ishmael, his only promised son is Isaac. Take your son to a mountain that I will show you. And Abraham takes his son on a three-day journey, and so for three days in Abraham's mind, Isaac is dead to him because he says, take him to this mountain and offer him as a burnt offering to me. And that mountain then changes name for Abraham to Jehovah-Jireh. For this, the Lord provides, stops his hand, says, don't harm your son. Now I know that you love me and will obey me, and there's a ram in the thicket. And he offers that, and he calls the place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide, or the Lord that sees or provides. And then later on, um, Solomon is told to build the temple on that very mountain. 
And so the temple's on a corner of this spot that goes, and there's ups and downs. And, and, and I, you know, when people say it's the exact spot, uh, Jesus, I don't understand Jesus being on the exact spot because the temple, it, one of those has to be right. Either the temple's on the spot or where Jesus was crucified, were, but they're all on the same mountaintop generally, and it's not a peak like this. But at any rate, God has done the very same work, only more. If people say that when God tells Abraham to offer his son, in the Old Testament, man, that God of the Old Testament is cruel, well, then if that's true, that the God of the Old Testament is cruel, then the God of the New Testament, and I don't separate them for the sake of argument, the God of the New Testament is even much, much crueler because Abraham did not offer Isaac as a sacrifice, did he? No, God never was going to have that be fulfilled in that way. He already knew what he was doing. Yes, there was emotion and tension there in, in, <laughs> that is hard for us to comprehend. And we say, well how, well, how would God do that? How could he do such a thing? Because he took a man who represented the faith of all mankind and let that man and his son be a picture, and only a picture, of what would happen in reality. And in reality, God would completely, fully, 100% in totality offer himself through his son, God would provide himself an offering, as it says in Genesis 22. God will provide himself an offering. God provided himself an offering through his son, Jesus Christ. And um, God's only begotten son climbs that same mountain and suffered on the cross. God became a man, became a lamb of sacrifice. So what did Jesus say concerning the temple that they showed him built on also a part of the same mountain? Well, destroy this temple, and in three days I will, I will build it again. I will raise it up again. He was speaking of the temple of his body, you know, his death and his body. And then we see here that Jesus is crucified between two thieves. Well, you would think, uh, maybe you'd think, gee, if he's going to suffer for us, if he's the holy, pure, and righteous son of God, wouldn't you have at his side two worthy people to suffer along with him? Somebody wonderful and great? Well, tell me who you'd pick that's wonderful and great that would have any comparison to Jesus. I think it's quite appropriate. It's a perfect setting. And it's the, re- the reason he's, he's crucified between two criminals. Now, the word is criminals. It can be translated thieves, but it can include every form of crime to, the, to murder, insurrection against government, to thievery, to other kinds of extortion. It's criminals. And he's crucified between two criminals for very good reason. It's, he was numbered among the transgressors. Isaiah prophesied, um, you know, over um, 700 years earlier. He's crucified as the Son of God, but he's crucified as man between two thieves. You know, pleased as man, we sing, and I think Joel mentioned it um, uh, earlier too. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Pleased as man, he, God became a man. With men to dwell, and the only kind of people he could be crucified with were criminals, because the only kind of people there are are criminals. Don't make a mistake about this. Don't miss it, or you won't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. It won't make any sense to you. It ought not make sense to you unless you see the full reality that we're going to talk about here. And so 
he was numbered among these uh, transgressors. Uh, They were transmessers too. But in Matthew and Mark, we read that both, Matthew and Mark both tell us that the the priests were mocking, the soldiers are mocking, some of the people are mocking, and that the very men hanging next to Jesus are mocking him. It says plural, they were mocking him. If you're the son of God, get down off this cross and get us down too. But then in Luke, and I'm going to turn there to Luke chapter 23. You don't have to, but you can listen or, or read with me. In verse 23, in the same location of situation, in verse 39, then one of the criminals who was hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. Verse 40. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I don't believe in deathbed repentances and conversions. I just don't see that. Oh, I'm reading it wrong, aren't I? You know, if you want to argue with deathbed conversions, you better argue with Jesus. Don't argue with people about it. Go right to the source. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. Between two thieves, it appears that both were mocking until the second one, or the one we're talking about, had to change a heart. Perhaps when he saw Jesus cry out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Oh, it's possible Matthew and Mark are just including them the way they say it, but the likelihood is that they were both mocking, and then the one changes his tune as his view of Jesus becomes more clear. Now, once again, I can relate to this. I was mocking the Lord. I was mocking my Lord three days before I was saved. I won't ask you to raise your hand. Some people are so embarrassed by this. I, I, I'm, 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 not, I'm not bragging about it. Don't misunderstand me. I'm just amazed at God's grace. And I, I have nothing to claim. What would I be claiming if I don't claim God's grace? Well, I was a very sincere person, you know. I was searching. And I lined up all the information and studied for many years and made sure that I made my determination correct because I wanted to do the right thing. Well, maybe somebody has that attitude. I don't think that that's really true. I think there's a lot of pride there, and I can't speak to other people's attitude completely. I can only tell you the Bible says there's none righteous, not one. There's none that seeks after God. If God doesn't draw you to him, you don't come to him. And, you know, I wasn't seeking God. He knew my heart. He knew, I don't know why I came to Jesus, and so many people I know haven't. This is not my glory or my strength or look at me. This is, I'm amazed at the grace of God. I'm amazed at the grace of God. And I feel very fortunate to have been a person that had darkness and then light, and it was clear. Because I know I was in darkness. And I knew I was in darkness when the light shined and I ran from it. Not immediately. When I ran from it and hit the wall, boom. <laughs> it's like, okay. 
No glory to Rick. This isn't about glorifying men for their conversion. Every conversion, every repentance, every turning from darkness to light is a glory to God, every single one. Nothing about humans and who they are other than needing salvation. Are you with me on this? This is the gospel. This is the gospel. And so, he, he, this guy, I, I, he hears Jesus, and it's in the context, too, as you read through the story, it seems it was, he hears him say, Father, forgive them. And he turns to the other one and goes, don't you fear God? I'm not saying it's exactly at that moment, but gosh. Don't you fear God, seeing we receive the due reward for our deeds? Well, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as that guy on the other cross. <laughs> you know. But this man has done no wrong. And remember me when you come to your kingdom. He sees Jesus innocently suffer. He hears Jesus cry out, Father, forgive them. He believes Jesus is the king of the Jews. You know, he believes Jesus is the king. He acknowledges his own sinfulness and that he has earned death, that he's suffering. And he asks Jesus to welcome him into his kingdom. You know what? This guy is telling us the gospel. This guy's story is telling us the gospel. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in in paradise. This guy cannot, and we've covered it a little bit before, but for those of you that haven't and for all of us to remember, what can this man do to fix his wrongs, to do penance? What can he do? Hey, Jesus, just drop me off of this cross. I'll go, I'll go to my mother's grave and stand over it, or if she's alive, and tell her how sorry I am that I've been such a wicked kid and caused her such heartache. I'll go, I've got a list of the people that I've uh, murdered, extorted from, or stolen from, and I'll go talk to each one of them and pay them back five times the amount. I'll go make it right. Give me a chance to make it right. Did this guy have any chance to make anything in his life right? Zero. Except to look upon Jesus and to believe in Jesus. Numbers 21 tells us that the people of God in the wilderness had already failed, and they were traveling through the wilderness after they refused to enter the promised land. Because that happened in chapter 14. But now we're in chapter 21. And the people, as they're traveling, God's taking care of them, and he's promised them that their children will enter in, and he's going to take care of them through their journey. And when you've blown it and you lose out on something, it doesn't mean you lose out on everything. In the Bible, it really tells you not every, you know, there's a verse that says he'll, he'll, he'll just, the, the years that the canker, that the locust is eaten, he'll restore and, and on all that. And God can make things like they never happened in a sense, but and a beautiful thing, and you could do a whole study on that, it'd be true. But there's another thing that's true. That sometimes you've missed out on things in this life, in this world, that just are not going to be restored. Every single one of us is waiting for heaven, because it's better. <laughs> because it's not heaven till it's heaven. You, you know, if you're looking for God to create a perfect earth for you right now, you're going to be very frustrated and discouraged because he doesn't seem to feel obligated to do that. He's pointing you to eternity. You have eternal life. It's a quality of life that will never be diminished from you but will grow in excellence and wonder. 
and it's, a, and it's a life that will go on forever. And this will be a vapor that you won't remember, and every tear will be wiped away. So the things that are bad here, that are hard here, are going to be wiped away. It's not fantasy. It's not me making it up. I'm just quoting what the Bible teaches us. And what we desperately need to understand is that it isn't heaven till heaven. And God never promised us heaven on earth. He did promise us his presence in our life. And so they are in a place where, no, they're not going to enter. They're going to die in the wilderness, this older generation. But they have children, and they have a heritage, and they have a purpose. But they're discouraged, and, and everybody gets discouraged. Am I right? Does that happen? Everybody gets discouraged. You know, if you met somebody who never got discouraged, you'd hate them. <laughs> you'd be mad at them, you know, because they'd bother you. And you're like, Don't you ever, can you just be sad once? The Bible says weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. There are moments, there are, you know, there are moments. There's a thing called grieving and mourning loss. But there's also a discouragement that these people are starting to go down a black hole, kind of a, I'm making a spiral down. And, and they're discouraged, and when they let their discouragement cause them to complain more and be bitter more, and God's really kind of been dealt, dealing with them about this. And so he sends serpents out among them, and they get bitten, and they're dying from serpents, and they're crying out. And God says, okay, Moses. Moses intercedes, and the Lord says, um, make a brass serpent. By the way, I don't know how long that took. <laughs> While they're suffering, getting bit, and, then, and put it on a stick on a stake, a pole, I knew I could get the word out, put it on a pole and have the people look upon it. Those who look upon it will be, they'll be, they're suffering and the pain and the curse of this serpent bite will go away. You see the serpent, somebody asked me after first service, why the serpent, doesn't that represent Satan? Well, yes, partially. Certainly it was the serpent that came to Eve and deceived her and then Adam ate willingly, knowingly. But the serpent didn't crawl on its belly like a reptile. (laughs) It didn't crawl because God's curse upon it was you shall now crawl, right? And be eaten dirt, all right? So the serpent was cursed. Satan was using the serpent, but it was a beautiful creature probably. And and I know many of you love snakes, but now it's a snake. Now it's a serpent. Now it's cursed. Well, how come that, you know, so the curse that they brought upon themselves... It's bitten them. And make the curse and put the curse on a pole because Jesus became a curse for us. He didn't become Satan. He did become a curse. The curse. Whoever is pinned to a tree is cursed. He took our curse, the curse of our failure and our sin. And he says, whoever looks upon it. Now, what kind of sincerity do you need to look upon a snake on a pole? How sincere am I as I look? Sincere, without wax. The guys who made the statues, the piece of the nose would break off. They'd glue it on there with wax. And then when the sun came out, and it's already been sold to the guy for a million dollars, the sun comes out and the wax melts and off falls the piece of the nose. Oh, that, was, that's, that guy was insincere. He wasn't being real. You know, being, we think of being sincere enough as like, you gotta be, you gotta really mean this. You gotta really mean this and be sold out on this. And, and I don't know how you measure that within yourself. You get very confused. Because one day you're very sincere. Have you noticed that one day you're really sincere and the next day you go, wow, I'm not very sincere? 
<laughs> I'm rather self-centered right now again, and I'm thinking all in one. Because if you try to measure it in human terms, you'll get very confused. You know what my sincerity is? And obviously God wants me to be pointed towards him, thinking about him, caring about him, be for real. Of course he does. Of course he knows me. But my sincerity is Jesus. I look at him and I say, I believe you. I believe you. And as I believe him, I turn away from sin. It might take a lot of time. I might stumble a lot. But I won't turn back. Not permanently. I'll keep going because there's no other place for me to go than to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, whoever looks upon this will be lifted. You see, they're complaining, and their complaining brought them bitterness, and their bitterness was bringing them death. And God says, the answer is to look upon the one who took the curse for you. And I guarantee you this, because the Bible guarantees you this, not Rick. It is only the only way out of discouragement absolutely and fully, and there's layers and layers of all kinds of things in life. But the ultimate answer to discouragement is to see Jesus on the cross for you, who he is for you, what he's done for you. I don't have any other, any better answer. I don't feel obligated to. I'm not smart enough to. And if I was, it would be false smartness, which is a word, because it would be about my mental capacity to help somebody figure stuff out. There's, there's a time to unravel some things in your life. It's true. But when you get to the bottom of everything, until you've seen the cross, really, truly seen the cross, you're going you're gonna to find that discouragement will eat you up as will bitterness. And I think that you have to grow in seeing the cross. You don't just do it one day. And everyone gets discouraged. There's no question of that. That isn't the point. Never be discouraged again. The question is, what do you do with it? How do you get out of it? Because without seeing the cross, nothing else will satisfy the deepest need of your soul. And so Romans 4 tells us that in 4 through 8, about this issue of just believing. This guy's on the cross next to Jesus. He just believes him. And, and we think of it as easy believism, but I don't think that at all. Now, to him who works, wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Did you ever go to a job and the boss gives you your pay and you worked really hard and you say, oh, what an honor that you'd offer me this wonderful gift of my paycheck. But I'm going to not take it today because I, don't, I didn't really earn it and I don't want you to give me any gifts. No, you say, where's my pay? And you check it carefully. I worked I work 16 and a half hours this week, and you only pay me for 16 hours. And I want that other $2.70, or today, $95.80. But um, the min- new minimum wage. But it, whatever that means. My point is, is that you're very aware of what you earned, aren't you? You know, And if you aren't, then your husband or wife is, or your parent or somebody is, because somebody's watching the numbers, Okay. I did this much, I get this much for what I did. That's an earning. It's a debt. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. There's another word people probably don't like. They like to apply it to, oh, that's an ungodly dress you're wearing. Or those are ungodly. I'm not looking over. You're not wearing dresses. Good. <laughs> or what an ungodly person that verminous person is there. But the, who's the ungodly? Everybody who's not God is ungodly until they come to Jesus Christ. Only his blood can make you godly. To keep it simple and short there. And so, and then it says just as, and so he justifies the ungodly, and his faith is accounted to him for righteousness. 
I don't fully explain this gift of righteousness. I don't fully explain it being totally by faith and not of works. I don't, when the Bible talks about how we should work hard, I'll talk about how we should work hard and be faithful to the Lord. When the Bible talks about grace and says you can't earn it, I'm not going to try to blend them perfectly together to give this perfect picture of what it means to be saved by grace, but you better work too because I don't want you to get lazy here. That's man. God knows how to move a heart of a person. Here's the deal. If you get it, you can't believe that you get to serve Jesus. You, I can't believe, when I'm right on, it's not, well, there ought to be at least 100 people here today, and they better listen intently, and they better change. Well, who am I? Who am I then? The man on top, the big guy, the big kahuna? No, I know that I understand grace when I go, I can't believe that I get to be the one sharing right now. Uh, you know, I was making fun of the Lord. And in, even in 45 years of walking with him, or I think it's about my birthday's on New Year's Eve, and so is Nathan's. You can congratulate us for a happy new year of new life because we came to the Lord on New Year's Eve. Am I right? Yeah, okay. I lose things over time, you know. And uh, you know what? It, it was the same year, 1971-72. And you know what? When I pray to the Lord, I don't say, Lord, this is Rick, who I've witnessed for many years. I went to Washington, D.C. with a mission. I went to Africa. I, did. I expect you to answer my prayer and hear me because of all the good that I've done. You know, if, if you hear me pray that way, move away for the lightning strike. <laughs> or, God, thank you that I'm not like other men. No, I pray, I pray to the God who shows me kindness and mercy right now, and I'm way more aware of my sin than I was when I was 18. And though I stopped doing a lot of things pretty immediately, I didn't stop being who I am immediately. And in fact, I still have some of who I am that needs redemption and forgiveness and mercy. Am I alone in this room? No. My story's a little different than maybe somebody else's, but our testimony is the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven is also the words of David. David described the blessedness, it goes on to say, of the man whom God will impute righteousness apart from works. He puts it on you that you're righteous. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. He doesn't let the sin stay upon you for judgment, but he washes it and cleanses it. And Paul reaches back to David. Well, he'd know. David would know. The only legal remedy for David's sin was death. He committed adultery and murder. This man after God's own heart committed adultery and murder. This is not a message that encourages people to commit adultery or murder. That's idiotic. That's foolishness. That's ridiculous. So what do you do? Do you throw out David's story so you won't have to talk about it? So you won't have to churn inside over it? But so many people find help because they go, and even somebody who hasn't gone on the outward way of doing all those evil things outwardly, when you go to the Beatitudes, you find out we're all murderers. And we're all, we've all committed the sin of sexual sin, whether we've actually acted it out or not. Because if you've done it in your mind and your heart, you've done it. So we're all guilty under the law. We're all guilty under the higher law that Jesus said. And there's more. There's more subtlety. What's greater than murder and adultery? Self-righteousness. I'm better than you. I'm better than him. 
I can keep you under my thumb because I'm better than you are. Give me a thief and a murderer. Because someone who's better than others, get yourself, not that that guy was thinking that, but they will also say, get yourself down if you're the son of God and get me down too because I do not deserve to be here. I do not deserve to be here. I, I did nothing to get this kind of treatment. You know, some of you have received treatment from other people that you didn't deserve from that person. Don't misunderstand me. People do wrong to each other, and it's pretty horrible when it happens, when it happens really bad. But the way you see yourself is seeing yourself and others past yourself and past others to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, and, and let, me, let me make this very clear. Most of you are very comfortable in the setting we're in right now Many people are very angry at this very thought. This, this troubles them greatly. They're mad. They're ticked. How dare you? Not only people who are in great pain because of suffering they've had at the hands of others, but people who simply observe it and don't understand because in their heart and their mind, they think they're a good person. And they think that most people, man is basically good. And the gospel offends and flies in the face of all those thoughts. I'm not saying we can't do good things. I'm not saying I don't like myself, love myself, but I understand that I need the cross of Jesus Christ. So the only legal remedy for David's sin was for him to die under stoning. And you know what? If you're a Jewish scholar, you know, to read these things... I would picture a Jewish scholar having steam and smoke come out of his ears and his head start spinning because there's nothing given that gives us an understanding in the Old Testament of how David could be forgiven. It's just grace thrown upon him. He's the picture of mercy and grace, but he's not the only one. And so the inscription, Pilate declares Jesus' crime he doesn't declare it as a crime. You know, they would put the prisoner's crime above his head. But in this case, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and of course they scream out that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And it's in three languages, of course, the one being most familiar to them. But many of these scholarly people spoke and under, I mean, understood Latin and certainly Greek. But uh, they also spoke Aramaic commonly. So some of these guys are quite scholarly and knowledgeable language. But it's in Hebrew for everyone to see. In Israel there is the language of theology, and that's the Jews. Latin is the legal language of Rome and therefore the world, and Greek was the intellectual and cultural language that crossed all over the world, and the cross was for the whole world. What I've written, I have written. The religious and legal-minded have no grasp of faith accounted for righteousness. It just blows their circuits. The gospel offends every culture somewhere and or another, and it's the answer for all of mankind. So there, the, the intellectual mind rejects all this blood and forgiveness stuff, this nonsense. Sitting among us, that skeptic, that cynic would hear the song, what can wash away my sins, nothing but the blood of Jesus. I was one. I know what, how the, what the thinking is. There can be a variety, but... I can't believe these guys. They're archaic. They're living in this past, this control issue where the church controls you 
And I do know that the church has controlled people falsely. Um, but, you know, grace, grace will take you where you could never go. Grace will take you where the law can never make you be. Grace will change you from the inside out. It may take time, but it's a real change. It's a real change, isn't it? Like, to know that you're not better than others, you know, that, that, you know, we think about wicked sins, and we think of all the biggies that people point out. But self-righteousness is a horrific sin. It really is. And it's the easiest one to take on. Because if you're doing good and somebody next to you isn't doing good outwardly, it's just so quick. You're like, hey, what's your problem? <laughs> what is your problem? You know, why aren't you like me? God help us. Why aren't you like me? If I ever say that to you, I want you to get a hug and just pull me off the stage quick. Just throw me out in the dirt. Why aren't you like me? God help us. Help us to gaze upon Jesus and look at him and be changed to be like him. Many were gathered at this cross. Many were gathered on this hill, but only one person that we know of at the beginning understood it, and it was the guy that was hanging next to Jesus with nails in his hands and feet. And And soon more would understand even in a few minutes or hours the centurion the guy in charge of the roman soldiers who are mocking jesus would look up and it's it's one of those involuntary outward expressions that happens what i mean is he didn't i don't think he sat and went what do i want to say right now where's the camera <laughs> where's the where's the mini tapey you know it was it was where's the cell phone he was just staring at jesus seeing this when jesus gave up the ghost, and in this time of three hours of darkness and just all the things that he just observed and seen staring at the cross, he couldn't help himself. Out of his mouth came, truly, this man was the Son of God. There's somebody who also saw, and then others would, but it was a guy who was hanging there with no hands and nails hands and feet nailed, excuse me, with no hope of a future in this world. No hope of a future in this world. No hope of a future in this world. He cried out, not, hey, prove yourself and get me down. But Lord, take me with you. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Take me with you. Finally, there stood, verse 25, excuse 23, sorry. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also a tunic. Tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. And here's the reason that happened now. It tells you, not from them, but from God's word, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Oh, sure, they had control over their own emotions and their choices at the moment in one sense, but God was doing something through them. You know, they couldn't go to everywhere from the Salvation Army store to Saks Fifth Avenue. It wasn't like plentifully around them were clothing. You know, I went to Africa 
for, and um, one of the trips I took because of how we box up clothing and they sell it and buy it and take it in those big boxes and take it all over the world to people. And they don't just give it away. They sell it in the market. It's sold to a guys who sell it to the people. There is free clothing given. People like us, other groups like us, take clothing sometimes. But th- those clothes that you put in those boxes end up getting sold in big bulk to companies that ship it over as a whole. And uh, so I, I have lived, I lived in, in, you know, Medford, Oregon, which is out, in the, out from Medford where our church was. There's a place even beyond that out in the country called, um, oh, my gosh, I need Gail in here. Uh, <laughs> You know, oh, let's just call it Wallings. Wallings is not Wallings, but uh, it'll come to me later in my sleep, and I'll call you all each. Get me, make sure I have your phone number at midnight. So it's, it's you know, uh, maybe you can help me, you guys. It's on the way to um, Grant's Pass. But anyway, Wallings, uh, uh, Oregon. Just It's like about 10 people live there. And I go to Africa, and there's a guy standing there with a shirt, Wallings, Africa. And actually, a guy, Jerry, was from that region and saw this guy with the shirt. And so, you know, stuff from all over. But back then, clothes was a big deal. And they would, they tore up whatever they could of his other items, but they get this tunic that he wore that is, as we've talked about at Passover, very much like the kittle that the patriarch of the family would wear, a seamless linen tunic. Exactly the picture given to us in Leviticus of the high priest on the Day of Atonement would wear a seamless linen tunic. And Jesus, our great high priest, Jesus presided over the real Passover. Jesus is the real Passover. They take this item, they don't want to tear it up. You know, and I think there's even more to it, if I may. As Psalm 22 says that they cast lots for it, but that one piece of woven tunic was the value as a whole garment was so much more right? But more than a piece of woven cloth, woven and seamless, I just see a picture there, God's word, God's promises. You know, we, I talk about the crimson thread of salvation woven through the tapestry of time. The cross is everywhere from Genesis 3, when God comes to Adam and Eve and says, why are you naked? How did you know you were naked? And then he provides them animal skins. It doesn't said he sheared Sean the sheep. He didn't give them wool. He did not give them wool, did he? If he did, the wool was on the outside of the skin. He gave them animal skins. How do you get animal skins? You kill. Yeah, you shed the blood of the animal and kill it. The first animal sacrifice, then all the way through the Old Testament, continuously, constantly pointing us to Jesus. So, Some mock, and some cry, and some wonder, and some are indifferent at the cross. And I can't think of anything actually worse than indifference. Better an angry person whose emotions are stirred, who can't understand why we believe this foolishness or how that could be applied to him, and he's so mad. Better that. Better that. Than... Yeah, whatever. You know, whatever. No, man. Some of the people were mocking. Some were crying. Mary and, and the friends of Jesus that did come there, the ladies. Some were in wonder and consternation because they'd heard and seen his miracles. Some were indifferent. But the soldiers are not the only people who play games at the foot of the cross. 
And of course, I didn't coin that phrase, but it's been around us for a long, long time since right here. They're playing games. They're playing, you know, they're playing dice games, if you will, you know, lots and stuff in a different way. So they're playing at the foot of the cross, you know. But God takes the cross, and it means that a criminal like this guy or a king, (laughs) a king like David, they both should be hanging there equally, equally. God provides room at the cross for all of us. Some people are going to play games with God's mercy and with God's grace. They are until he returns. Some people are going to love him and be changed by him forever till he returns glorious and, and victorious. We just cannot make too much of the cross. We cannot make too much of his suffering and his sacrifice because the man that was next to him with the best view had the greatest hope in all the land. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus asks you and me to remember him till he comes to take us to be with him. It isn't that my words fix it or my reading of scripture fixes it, but the Holy Spirit can take the words of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit can come to you and, and, and it's okay to be desperate. It's better to be desperate for the actual real truth than to be desperate and trying to fill it with non-Jesus things. <laughs> it's okay to be desperate. When you see that you're bitter against somebody and you just don't know how to forgive them, you can feel pretty desperate. Well, better to be desperate and know you need Jesus than to not be desperate about that. Better be desperate that you feel so bad yourself and it's you and you can't forgive yourself. Well, I don't say to somebody, well, forgive yourself. There's lots of worse people than you. I would tell that person, you know, you're actually worse than you think. Stay with me for a minute. I'm not going to hurt you here. You're worse than you think. See, because you still think there's some hope You're so mad at yourself because you thought there was some hope of you changing yourself and being better. And you still think deep inside you somewhere there's this really good person that just needs to come out. I'm not saying you don't have good qualities. I'm not saying God didn't create you in his image. I'm not saying God doesn't have glorious things for you. But in your mind, you're looking for that good you inside of you that's the reason for God to forgive you and cleanse you and the reason for you to forgive yourself. And my friends, in reality, you will not find it. You will just circle and circle and circle and circle until you come complete Jacob. Uncle, <laughs> uncle, my name is supplanter. My, my name is schemer. Until you come, and even further than he came that day, and say, no, there's nothing in me. Paul says, I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Yeah. I'm not afraid to sit up here with you. You know why? Because if I had to be better than you to sit here, I couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Not in a clear mind. Do you think you have to be better than somebody to minister to them? Forget about it. It'll never happen. 
what you'll do is you'll put legalism on them that you're under. You're free. If you're in Jesus Christ, you're free by the blood of Jesus tonight. Nothing less, nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. So, Father, as we prepare our hearts to receive your body and blood, we pray that you